0: Hebrews 8, verses 1 through 6, really the chapter is is the case so often in this book, is part of a greater unit, I've decided to divide this into two units, really it's about your priest and his fulfilled ministry and his fulfilled covenant, but today we'll look just at his fulfilled ministry, his fulfilled sanctuary, as these verses give us great insight on the priestly ministry of Jesus. In fact, if you were to look at this whole book, uh, it begins at least in the first uh, six or seven chapters of uh, Hebrews to give us a clear explanation of how Jesus is superior to so many things that have come before. Not that the things before were, were bad or uh, inadequate, but now they, in light of Christ, uh, were done away with. And Jesus is superior to those things. And then the middle portion of the book which we are in the midst of, really speaks about the work and ministry of Jesus, that we might better understand particularly what it is that Jesus has done and is doing for you, for us, the church. And then finally, the book really ends with uh, compelling us to live for Christ. Now that's something that's woven throughout, so don't misunderstand what I'm saying, but it really comes to a a pinnacle at the end, uh, driving us to see that the only proper response to who Jesus is is to live for him. So hear now God's word, Hebrews 8, verses 1 through 6. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man, for every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect, a, erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that which was shown to you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. Let us pray. Father, there is so much there. When we read this wonderful uh, text of Scripture, your holy word, I pray, Lord, that we would just grow in our hunger for these deep truths about Christ. At the same time, Lord, I pray that what we learn today would translate immediately in to the way we live for you. I pray, Lord, that you would bring glory to yourself as a result of what is preached here and how we respond. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, it has dawned on me from time to time, because some of you have pointed it out to me, that my background is not necessarily your background. In fact, many of us come from similar backgrounds, but others, uh, sometimes when I talk, especially in terms of... Of my own spiritual journey it's probably very different from mine. As you know, I grew up in a Roman Catholic family, and so I grew up thinking I had a priest. I constantly knew who the priest was at the time, and he was my priest. Now, if you came from that background, you know what I mean. You have a priest, and you can, I can actually picture the different priests that I've had in my, in my head. We've had multiple priests at the different parishes, uh, the, the parish we were at, uh, and we uh, learned that they were special people who were different than other people. My friends had pastors and ministers, like some of you growing up, but they weren't priests. Uh, They they were uh, important for what they did religiously, but we had priests, and priests were different. Uh, They were literally mediators between us and God. And I grew up learning that and understanding that, and clearly having it displayed as I attended the Mass every week. And the Mass itself is a reference to, really, the last words of the liturgy, which means it has to do with being dismissed. But at the core and the heart of that service is the sacrifice of the mass. The death of Christ constantly played out over and over again. And only a priest could do that. So it was very personal to those of us who grew up in that that background. Uh, It was very difficult for me even to think in different terms. Uh, I came to biblical theological convictions that that was not a proper designation to give a person. However, it's still difficult whenever you leave something that is common to you uh, that is familiar, to leave that is, can, grants a certain amount of insecurity. I think all of you can relate with that at some level. You're probably not the same person you were when you were a child here today, and there's insecurities that come with leaving that which is familiar, even if you're convinced it's right. In fact, uh, talking to my father, who has gone through a much uh, harder road than I have, have in his, uh, in really in his spiritual journey to coming to a place where he clearly and openly professes his faith in Christ, But I've had many interesting discussions. None have probably been more interesting than the one that really reveals and maybe will give you all a feel for what it means to have a priest to someone who's in that background. Uh, When my father grew up, uh, he had 11 siblings. My grandmother, Serafina, before the age of 43, had 12 children. Three of them died before the age of 18, if you can imagine that, and then one died in in, uh, World War II, and several others served. I remember talking to my dad, who wasn't 40 until he had me, and really did not have plans to have children at all. He literally said, I was just put so off to my, my picture of upbringing was total poverty all the time. Literally going down to the railroad track to try to get the coal that would fall off of the, the train track uh, cars that would go by so they could heat their house. And so his impression of parenting and family was not positive. And I asked, I said, Dad, why did you never just ask your parents, why do they keep having children? And this is the answer, brothers and sisters. It was the teaching of the church, but more personally, their particular priest on several occasions told them when they asked if they had to keep having children because they couldn't afford them, and he said, yes, it's God's will for you to do this. You don't stop something that God's going to do, and that whole line of teaching. It's so powerful, more powerful even than the husband in the home was the priest in those days. That's still the case if you go to most places in Mexico today. In fact, the local evangelical pastors tell us that the heads of the homes here in this village that we're working in are not the men. It's the priest of the local parish. I say this to you so you could at least gather a bit of an appreciation for what our brothers and sisters were going through as former Jews who used to have a priesthood near and close to them, as inferior as it is, as insufficient as it clearly was in light of Christ. Still, this is a leaving familiarity, going to unfamiliar territory, insecurity was sure to inset. So, the author here takes great, great pains to explain just how much greater Christ is as our priest. Because I want us all to understand, no matter what your background, you have a priest. No better, you need a priest. You have to have a mediator. You cannot stand before God on your own, brothers and sisters. We do have a priest. The priest we have is Jesus Christ, the only mediator between God and man. And in this text, the heavenly sphere of Christ's priesthood is shown to be completely sufficient for all our spiritual needs. Please note, Christ's priestly ministry is fulfilled, but it's also still ongoing. You have a priest. And this text lays out for us the nature of our priest and the sanctuary in which he ministers. Look at verse 1. There we have, in very simple terms, the reality that the sovereignty of Christ and his equality with God makes him your only necessary mediator. Verse 1. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. The first phrase, now the point in what we are saying is this, is a reference back to that whole diatribe about the different kind of priest that Jesus is. Uh, He is in the order of Melchizedek, an eternal priest, rather than, Uh, a Levitical priest who had a temporary time and was very limited on many fronts. So the point we're making is that we have such a high priest, such being different than the ones that you're thinking of that come to your mind, that earthly person. We have such a high priest. The difference between those earthly priests and this such a high priest is that he is seated at the right hand, the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. I want you to consider for a moment this phrase seated at the right hand of the throne clearly this is a statement of sovereignty no other priest can claim this it is a statement of sovereign power seated at the right hand of the throne the place where ruling happens so we have by virtue of his ascended position the second person of the trinity the lord jesus seated at the right hand of the throne consider the throne a designation of privilege between god God the Father and God the Son, a designation of rule and sovereignty given to the Son. To be seated at the right hand means that he has equal status with the king who is on the throne. God is sovereign, Jesus Christ is sovereign. What other priest can top that? So, any priest you might be tempted to go back to, the writer says, realize how far back you'd be going. To something that's actually been rendered no longer effective. From that which is sovereign and seated at the right hand of God. So if you need a mediator, who do you go to? The one seated at the right hand of God? Or another person essentially like you? Christ has come and answered that question for us. He, the sovereign one, seated at the right hand. The sovereign priest. Consider God's right hand for a moment. Clearly it's figurative. God doesn't have hands or feet. Hebrews refers to Christ as being seated at the right hand five times in its book. And it's written throughout by the various different apostolic authors and in the Old Testament, in the Psalms. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make the nations a footstool. This reference has to do with bringing Jesus into this exalted position of sovereign ruler by virtue of his work on the cross and his ascension. God's right hand means that he has a place of vulnerability with the king. The king cannot raise his hand with a sword or scepter except that person in the right hand let them. In fact, we know from a Jewish tradition that in the Sanhedrin they would have the high priest sit in the the middle seat and two different scribes sit on either side. The one who sat on the left side was the one who drew up notes of condemnation. The one who sat on his right side wrote acquittals. Jesus sits at the right hand of the judge of the universe writing an acquittal for you. He sits at the right hand of God. He is sovereign in all matters. God, in some mysterious sense, shares his authority with his Son, in whom he is well-pleased. The best human example I can give of this uh, dates back to the days that I played uh, soccer in college, which gets further and further away. Uh, At any rate, my senior year was kind of a disappointment, to be honest. My junior year is the best year that I had ever had, and I hurt my knee pretty badly the last... Uh, the last uh, week of the season, in the spring season, it only got worse in the fall. Long story short, it was difficult for me to play a whole game without having problems with it, so Coach would kind of use me as a utility player, which was kind of frustrating to be honest, but he would put me in these different roles, and then he would, when I couldn't play anymore, he would take me out, and he would make me stand with him the whole time the game was going on, and I'd much rather have been in there, but there was something that developed between myself and uh, Coach through this time, as the team would be sitting in the team area on the bench or around the bench, and he would pace furiously on the sidelines and i'd more or less chase him go back and forth and he'd want me always to be near him and he would run stuff by me he would uh, tactic tactical questions uh should we move this person in here does he look keep your eye on him i'm going to keep my eye on this and it was this feeling of uh privilege actually that started to develop i started realizing he was starting to trust what i was saying too there were times where he asked me a choice between one player or another should we put this person there that person there should we do this play should we do this thing and really what i said would make a big difference in what he and and how he performed. And if you know my coach, he's not a guy that shared a lot of authority. There were even times where he would attend to something and he would leave me on the sideline to help essentially be like a player coach. That's the closest illustration I can give you to the kind of relationship that God the Father and God the Son have. God the Father, because he is so pleased with his Son, seats him at his right hand, and they co-rule with one will, essentially, over everything. Seated at the right hand. We have a sovereign priest. No one tops our sovereign priest. The author of Hebrews notes this unique place of honor even more by noting this fact. Notice what it says. He is seated or sitting. What do you think the significance of being seated at God's right hand? Instead of standing like a guard would at the right hand of one who is a ruler, rather sitting, kind of in a place of comfort. He's taking a place of relative rest. It's like the father is saying, I'm so satisfied with what you've done. Come on, take a load off. Sit next to me. Your work is done. You've done the work. Now you work in your intercessory role. But your work is done. And this is in huge juxtaposition with the earthly priests. Listen to what Hebrews 10 says about the earthly priests. And by that we will have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest, that is human priest, stands daily at his service. Notice what it says. Stands daily. Why is that so? They can never sit down. Their work is never done. There's no place to sit in the Holy of Holies, do you notice? Because there's no room to sit. They can't sit. The only place to sit, only Jesus can sit, and that beyond the ark itself. The priest cannot sit down, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ has offered for one time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. What a huge difference between our sovereign priest and the old priesthood. For all the good things the old priesthood brought us and declared to us and showed us and revealed, it's over now because we have one who is in the holy place, making intercession for us, giving us, giving you access, and he's able to sit in the presence of God. Doesn't have to stand. What a mystery. Flesh and blood could be seated at God's right hand. A couple ways I would challenge us to consider applying this. First of all, it has to do with our worship, my brothers and sisters. Hopefully this enhanced knowledge of Christ's sovereignty, that is where he is right now, seated at the right hand of God the Father, will seriously shape how you approach worship, both in your private times of worship, your family times of worship, corporate worship, I hope it seriously affects how you view Jesus. Now, please don't misunderstand me. Yes, Jesus is humbled. He has humbled himself. Uh, He walked on earth. He ate with sinners, stayed with sinners. We have a personal relationship with him. However, don't forget this. When we worship Christ, let us remember where our Savior is. He is sitting at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. We are worshiping the Lamb who is worthy to take and open up the scroll. It's not... It's not playtime when we're worshiping Christ. Because of where he is seated, he is ascended high and lifted up. He is so worthy that he could sit in the presence of God. Who of us could sit in God's presence? Who in the scripture ever sat in God's presence? Where were they? Laid flat out on the earth. Or fell as a dead man like John. But Christ, our sovereign high priest, can sit. That's the God we worship. I would also say, in addition to enhancing our worship, I would submit to you, and this has been true in my own life, and I know it has for many of you, that a true understanding of the true and absolute sovereignty of Christ comforts and stabilizes us in the face, especially of human tragedy. When Paul writes in Ephesians, he meant this by the power of the Holy Spirit. In Ephesians 1.11, In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him, who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Paul doesn't say who works most of the major things according to the counsel of his will, or really works on keys like on the majors and doesn't worry about the minors. That is not what it says in this and in many other places. We serve a sovereign God, which really means sovereign, and that means he works all things according to to the counsel of his will. So no hurricane makes landfall except for the sovereign will of God. No tornado touches down except for the sovereign will of God. No sickness besets, no injury is uh, inflicted, no trial assails, no challenge confronts except by the sovereign will of God. I'm not here to tell you I understand why it is, but I know who it is that sees and superintends over these things. And it's that which I rest in this fallen sinful world that any of us can experience its plight at any time. Spurgeon said it so well in his day, and it can be said in every day. There is no attribute more comforting to his children than that of God's sovereignty. Under the most adverse circumstances and the most severe trials, they believe that sovereignty has ordained their afflictions, that sovereignty overrules them, and that sovereignty will sanctify them all. There is nothing for which the children ought to be more earnestly contending for than the doctrine of their master over all creation." The kingship of God over all the works of his own hands. The throne of God and his right to sit upon that throne. For it is God upon the throne whom we trust. When we view our sovereign priest, Jesus Christ, in this way, it is clear why there are no more priests recognized by God. Only one, that is Christ. And none but Christ should be recognized by men. Let's look. what else this verse has to say regarding our great sovereign high priest look at verse two and verse three here we see christ continuing in his priestly ministry as our intercessor verse two jesus is described as a minister in the holy places note that is the present tense he is a minister in the holy places that's where he is now in the true tent that the lord set up not man For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices, thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. So in the present tense, Jesus, seated at the right hand of God, is also ministering in the holy place. And there's this comparison now given between uh, the earthly, knowledgeable, that which we can see and we even have drawings of, uh, the, the tabernacle, that is the holy place inside the tabernacle, the holy of holies, and the outer tent. So the holy place is that inner place right near the presence of God. The tent means the larger area, the tabernacle itself. To some degree, that instruction given by Moses, given to Moses is to picture heaven, at least some copy or shadow of it, at some level that we can comprehend. And that's where Christ ministers now. So much better than that which has been made by human hands. Look at verse 3. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts. Notice this closely. To offer gifts, plural, and sacrifices, plural. Of course, you know the priest had to continually do this. Their sacrifice is never ultimately satisfied. So multiple gifts, multiple sacrifices. That's what they had to do. The Levitical order. But this priest in the line of Melchizedek, he does have to give an offering. That's all he needs to give. Look at the second part of verse 3. Thus it is necessary for this priest, that is Christ. Also to have something to offer. The author knows as he's writing that Jesus only has to make one sacrifice. Other priests have to give multiple. This Jesus only has to give one. There's no re-sacrificing of Christ anywhere. It's done. And he has given it. He has had something to offer. Human high priests offer these gifts and sacrifices while Jesus gives himself. Hebrews 7, verse 27 verse we covered not so long ago, he has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. So Jesus, uh, fulfilling the role of a priest, gives the offering, but he only needs to give one, just one, himself. You know, there are necessary similarities between Jesus and the Levitical priests. There also is one major, one major necessary difference between jesus and the levitical order jesus needed no personal atonement for sin you cannot beat that priest there's not a better priest than that one he is our mediator the only mediator you ever wonder what jesus is doing right now and the bible isn't exhaustive on the details of this but children will ask this from time to time and certainly you've wondered what is he doing wouldn't just be bored sitting up there on the right hand of god all that time and that's a human statement we know but the fact is Scripture does give us this much clarity. We know for a fact that Jesus is intimately involved with creation, upholding all things by the word of his power. He's ruling over everything, not just people, but creation itself. I often think, by the way, as a side note, that he, he must get some divine chuckle out of what scientists come up with regarding his creation. Uh, you know, they think they figured it out. And it's he who created it, he who designed it the way it is. And the purpose is only in the mind of the designer. And here he does this from the throne. He is subduing his enemies to himself. Through his church, by building his church that he promised to do, he's subduing his enemies to himself. We also know that he is receiving worship. Angels uh, made simply to cry out holy to the Son of God. But also he's receiving our worship right now. He's receiving the worship of other brothers and sisters around this globe right now. He's receiving worship. He's very busy. He's very active. And finally, and probably most intimately, he is interceding for us now. You say, well, why do I need intercession? Let me tell you. Among other things, we continue to sin. We constantly need a Savior. It's important to note when a person first came to trust Christ as their Savior, but it's equally as important, do they trust Jesus now? Because they constantly need a Savior. They need his advocacy. I need his advocacy. He always intercedes for me because I need it so badly. But also, you need an intercessor because the church has an accuser. You have an accuser. We have an accuser who does nothing but accuse the brethren. In fact, in this forward look of the culmination of the ages and the judgment that will come, in Revelation it says, And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power of the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even to death. So this picture of what will ultimately happen gives us insight to what's going on now, and that's the accuser of the brethren keeps accusing, and the interceder for the brethren never stops interceding. He never almost gets his guard down and the devil sneaks in on me. He's constantly and always interceding for you. Even when you're sleeping at night and have no notion of Christ, he intercedes for you. Even when you're thinking of something else in your workday, Jesus intercedes for you. Even when you willfully decide you're going to sin in this moment, you've thought about it and you're still going to do it, he intercedes for you. This is the high priest we have. Why would we ever need another? Hebrews 7.25 says it wonderfully. He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. The same sentiment is shared with Paul under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, shared by Paul. He says, who, it is, who is it who condemns? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us? That's present tense. That's now, brothers and sisters, even now as we sit here together worshiping. I would like to also point out in verses 4 through 6, not only are these things true about our sovereign high priest, but also... And really, finally, at least for this half of these verses, Christ fulfills and finishes the need for an earthly priest. Uh, There is no further need. And while I often uh, recognize, and I do recognize this, and say this very carefully, uh, and it's done in ignorance usually, at least it was by me for so long, it is at least a terrible slight to our true priest, Christ, to refer to any human being on this side of the ascension as a priest. At worst, it's designating someone in our day some person, and by designating them, it's a constant confession against the sufficiency of Christ. That's serious. Look at verses 4 through 6. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. Very simply, uh, he is not in the Levitical order. According to the law itself, he wouldn't be a priest in that sense. He, he really surpasses the priesthood. Uh, he doesn't fall into that... dying breed that was there the levitical priesthood for all that's good then verse 5 reminding us that they serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things for when moses was about to erect the tent he was instructed by god saying see that you make everything according to the pattern a copy and a shadow is a key uh, indicator as to the purpose of these things that came before christ uh, many of you have probably in your day had your children, even you might have done, and I remember doing this myself when I was in kindergarten or first grade, I had one of those pictures done where you sit in front of an overhead projector and they do the outline of your head. And uh, your, your mothers and fathers cherished this cute little thing, look at his nose, and, and uh, my family, all the noses were really big, you can imagine. But anyways, a side view, you'd have this person that you could tell was Tony. Now, you couldn't tell the hair color, you couldn't tell uh, eye color, you couldn't see features on the face necessarily, but you knew it was me. Just like when you have one of your own children, you know which one of your children are. Other people may not get it, you might have to tell them who it is. It's a shadow. It's them, but it's a shadow. It has merit, it's worthy, but it's not the crisp digital photo that you might get of it. Better yet, the real thing. That's what a copy and a shadow is. It's not bad, it's not of no worth, it's simply saying it's then outdone when the real thing comes or when the real thing is known. They serve a copy and a shadow of heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, in light of what is in heaven, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown on the mountain. In other words, he never says to uh, Moses, hey Moses, here's a basic plan. You know, run with it a little. See what you can do with it. You know, play with this model, this this plan for the tabernacle a little bit. You kind of really let your mind flow with it. It's not what he says. He wants it done precisely because it has a heavenly reality tied to it. You know, there's a couple things I think we can note from this uh, text in, in this portion. First of all, I am not at all saying that because we should not have priests, that we should not have pastors, teachers, elders, deacons. That's not what I mean. New Testament is clear that we have an ordained leadership. Uh, Timothy talks and warns against laying hands on too early to someone who's in an ordained position. We need pastors. We need teachers, elders, deacons. We need ordained leadership. But we don't need mediators because we have Christ, the only mediator. And see, we need pastors to do what? To point us to the mediator. That's what our job is. We're not any less important necessarily in the economy of the church, but we're to get out of the way so that you see the mediator. No one ought to walk out of here thinking what they heard is something about me or the church. What they heard was Christ. What they saw was Christ. That's the job of the church, to point out Christ, its head. We need these people. We just don't need a mediator a human mediator, because we have the ultimate mediator in Christ. But I'd also like to point something else out that has just struck me as I read this, especially this portion where uh, we're reminded of the particular nature that God wanted, uh, the particular detail that God wanted in copying the plan that He gave to Moses, that it would be done exactly as He said it, for it was for the purpose of worshiping. That's what it says in verse five. They serve as a copy and a shadow of heavenly things. So there's some heaven heavenly connection to that which God reveals. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed, saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown. It is important to me, God the Father says, how you worship me and how I am presented before the nations. I'm not giving this to your own will. I'm telling you how you ought to do it. Now, I want to ask you this question as you consider that. In the midst of a seriously confused day and age, in the ranks of the church especially, does form in the worship of God matter? Do you think it does? In other words, do you think it matters how we worship the true and living God? Is it really all right to leave uh, how to worship up to the individual uh, whim, believer, or church? Are there no standards for worshiping God all right? And I am not here at all to condemn other forms. And I hope none of us get so arrogant as to think that somehow we've got it figured out, because I promise you we don't. But the guiding question ought to be, no matter who it is, wherever they are, is, is this what God wants in worship? Not what I want in worship, or worse yet, what someone who's not a friend of Christ wants in worship. That's the question, the ultimate guiding question about how we are to be regulated in our worship is that it's for God and it's according to God. It's God's worship. And I would submit to you that all the fear that the modern church has about turning people off because they do it the way the Bible says would be alleviated if they would just recognize that Jesus is building his church. And that he'll, by using his church the way it is, by doing its best in all its imperfections to follow what the word says, that's how he'll draw people to Christ. Not by juggling chainsaws and any other kind of possible uh, entertainment we'll do just to get him to come in. What a folly we make Christ when we do those things. He gives us clear, clear guidelines The details will differ among brothers and sisters across the board, for sure. But the guidelines that it's about worshiping God and what pleases Him should always drive us. Because we're talking about our sovereign priest. The one who fulfills and finishes the need for an earthly priesthood. If He's given us His access to God, let's respond to Him the way that glorifies Him. And He has been so kind as to give us instruction on that in His Word. Form does matter. It's not the key... But it shows what question we're answering. What guiding question drives us. Arthur Pink says it in only the way he can. He said, Christians ought to exercise the utmost care and diligence to ascertain the revealed mind of God in what he requires from us in our worship. Though Moses was learned in all the wisdom of Egypt, that was of no value or avail when it came to spiritual acts. Let me say that again. Though Moses was learned in all the wisdom of Egypt, that was of no avail or value or avail when it came to spiritual acts. He must do all things precisely as Jehovah ordered. In connection with what is styled divine worship today, the great majority of professing Christians follow the dictates of their own wisdom or inclination of their fles, uh, fleshly lusts rather than Holy Scripture. Others mechanically, this is what we have to listen closely to, Others mechanically follow the traditions of their fathers or the requirements of popular custom. The result is that the Holy Spirit is grieved and quenched by the holy inventions of carnal men. And Christ is outside the whole thing. It's about Christ at the center, my brothers and sisters. It's about Christ and how he asks us, how he commands us to glorify him, our sovereign priest. Christ's fulfilled and ongoing priesthood is shown to be completely sufficient for all your spiritual needs. I conclude with this simple question and answer that I sure didn't write. The writers of our shorter catechism said it well. How does Christ execute the office of a priest? Christ executes the office of a priest in his once offering up of himself a sacrifice to satisfy divine justice and reconcile us to God and in making continual Intercession for you. Let us pray. Lord, we are so grateful that we have a great high priest, a sovereign high priest. Forgive us for looking to any other mediators, whether they be uh, mere men or some other security that we have built up that we think somehow gains access to you, maybe just our good works. Lord, forgive us for this. Help us again to see the exalted Christ in all his glory seated at your right hand from where he will come to judge the quick and the dead. Lord, I pray that we would be a changed people by living lives that are filled with the worship of you, Almighty Father. We thank you, Lord, for this opportunity to worship you this day. In Jesus' name, amen.